Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Modern Squid Podcast, where we learn about the people behind our favorite writers and brands. On today's episode, we have Megan Stark. She is the founder of Great Lakes Supply Co., which is a motorcycle apparel company. And she also is a writer, a writer, and a coffee enthusiast. She owns a 2017 Ducati Scrambler Cafe Racer. And with that, let's jump right in. First off, I hear you are from Mesa, Arizona. Well, how'd you find that out? <laughs> so you, uh, you were in one podcast and you said mm -hmm. that you are both private and transparent at the same time. Right? Well, what, which, which podcast was that? I don't know. You're on like three different podcasts and I listen to them all. So. <laughs> oh, great. I, some of them disappeared. So I, yeah, I think I've only been able to retract down like one or two. Well, yeah, with the Mesa thing, that's where I was born. I was essentially raised in Milwaukee, though. Um, I was just like born in Arizona and my family moved up to Wisconsin pretty soon after that. Only about like two or three years after I was born. <laughs> but I go back to the desert as often as I can. That's actually why I'm like always rocking a lot of turquoise stuff. The Southwest roots. I mean, I bring it up because I'm based in Phoenix. Um, oh, cool. Actually, I'm out in Glendale. You probably know the area better than some people. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, so I'm in the West Valley. And when I saw, or when I heard rather in that interview, you were from Mesa, I was like, oh, neat. So we got a bit of a connection here, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I love Arizona. I was just back in February and mm -hmm. I did uh, a little bit of riding out there. And yeah, that was really nice. I assume you rented a bike while you were out here? Yeah, I, um, I've got like a great partnership with Twisted Road. And every so often, if I'm going on a trip, I ask them for a rental or like we talk about doing a rental. And if I make a video, I get a free rental. So I rented a Yamaha FZ07. And that was a really good time. It's like very easy. And I just kind of did like a nice little day ride out into the mountains and back. It was actually pretty cold considering, but not half bad. Did you go out to South Mountain or which mountain did you go to? I went to the Superstition Mountains and I just got through to, did I go to Globe or I might've stopped in like Superior because it was kind of chilly and I got a late start that day. So I don't think I went all, I started in like Chandler and then went out to Superior and back. So it wasn't like crazy long. <laughs> yeah. Do you still have family out here in Arizona or do you just come out because you like it? Um. Yeah. My My parents have some kind of uh, like some of their best friends are out there and they knew me since I, when, you know, when I was a baby. And so I mostly have like friend connections out there and like my godfather and, and his mother. So it's kind of like extended. It's like my fake grandma or fake family, <laughs> not actually related. So it's not the uncle that you learned to ride uh, dirt bikes with. No, I actually just saw him a couple weekends ago. He's um, out in rural Wisconsin. And he's got 120 acres still. Um, he's had that property for a long time. And yeah, that's how I got started. He used to race Hondas and he owns like, I don't remember what year the Ducati is that's in his garage right now, but he's got an old Ducati in his garage that kind of trying to see if my dad can borrow, but he doesn't have his license yet. So, so is uh, that the reason that you guys, you and your brother started out on, oh my gosh. You and your brother started out on Hondas? Yeah, I don't know. I think um, the Hondas just like ended up being a natural choice. I don't think we thought about it in like the lineage kind of thing. Um, but I just knew that Honda Rebels were a small, super user-friendly bike and that there were a lot of them around. Um, and my brother had started out on the uh, CBR 400R. And I had borrowed that from him. 
um, actually after I already owned the Rebel. And I know Hondas are just great bikes, you know, it's pretty uh, undisputable. And I liked the look of the Rebel. Like, I don't totally love some of the other, I'm thinking like the Suzuki, like, cruisers i haven't really liked the look of them i guess i haven't looked at that many i i think i've seen some newer ones coming out that look pretty great but um yeah i just uh lightweight really forgiving the the rebels like belt driven i'm pretty sure <laughs> i haven't used it in a long time and i like forget that stuff immediately uh but yeah just um did a lot of cursory research and that's where i ended up okay I mean, you know, it just seemed like quite a coincidence that your uncle had Honda and Ducati and now you and your brother Honda and Ducati. Yeah, it is kind of a funny thing. And it's like, we do like look at other options and we uh, just ended up with the same, it must be a uh, genetic. <laughs> One of the running themes I can see in all of the uh, social media stuff you have out there and available uh, public there's like this theme of local and uh, small business. Um, so did Harley ever enter into the equation really in, in your search since they are a local company or were you really just set on something a little bit more your style? In terms of picking a bike? Yeah. In terms of picking your next bike after the Honda. Yeah. Um, I guess, and you know, I've had, I've had my Ducati just for a little bit of context. Cause I was like, other people aren't watching this conversation. I have a 2007 Ducati scrambler cafe racer. And I bought that like first year they made it. I bought it before it got here. And it was actually this whole like long and involved odyssey getting the bike because they were all sold out in Milwaukee. And then I went to Chicago and then like a week before I went to Chicago, the guy in Milwaukee's like, Oh, one fell through. Do you want it? I'm like, Oh no, I already paid for the one in Chicago. So I ended up going to Chicago to buy it. But, um, for getting the Ducati, um, well debating on like which bike brand to go with Harley. Um, I guess one thing about bikes that I was more cautious about at that time than I am now, cause now I've ridden a lot of different bikes and I know, that I can handle more weight, but I was kind of dissuaded from Harley in the beginning because they barely have, I don't think they have any bikes that are less like 500 pounds. Might be kind of different now. I feel like, what is it? Oh no, I'm thinking that Indian bike, but they've got, they've got some other bikes now that I think might weigh a little bit less. And I didn't want to do like a street 500 or anything like that. That seems like really only a bike they use to like teach people on. And I, I don't think I've ever seen them out in public maybe once before. Um, but when it came to Harley, uh, there, you know, there is a, a strong culture and there's all this heritage, but I just didn't see the dollar amount lining up with the value of the bike. Just personally, I've got a lot of friends who ride Harleys and they love them and they've had great experiences on them. But I just know that a lot of that is an expensive buy-in. Now, granted, I'm like, oh, I went with Ducati. <laughs> like that's an expensive buy-in too. But to me, like you said, it kind of aligned with my ethos a little bit more. It was like, a lean, mean Italian machine. And I really like that about it. And I could, I could foresee myself having a, a Harley, uh, but that would be maybe for a different like riding time in my life. And especially in the past three years, I'm very much a city rider. So having that cafe racer is really, and is that the cat's Oh meowing? yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, having that cafe racer really reflects that the primary riding I do, it makes a lot of sense for me. So I think 
you know, I have been getting into more longer distance riding. And when I do rent bikes, I often will grab um, a Harley, something with saddlebags already on it to make my life really easy. And they are very appealing for long distance. They're very comfortable, but I might even look into other options for that. I think, um, I don't know, there's been a lot of buzz about like where Harley's going and if they've like shot themselves in the foot or not. And I, I do really support like Harley, but I don't know if I would support them with my dollars, you know? <laughs> yeah. So my own perspective on that is I, I was just recently shopping for a bike because I just got into motorcycles. Um, I learned to ride in November in Nicaragua. A buddy of mine taught me uh, mm. and just kind of was hooked ever since. And stylistically not just this past november yeah yeah this past november. oh wow oh, oh yeah i'm gosh. brand spanking new yeah jumped right into it that's oh, exciting definitely. yeah i mean i i fell in love i mean i i never wanted to ride a bike growing up i always thought they were too dangerous uh you know until i actually hopped on one and then i was like gosh darn it <laughs> You're like, uh-oh, yeah, so, <laughs> not going back now. <laughs> you know, I've always thought Harleys were sort of the best looking bikes because um, for the most part, street bikes and uh, things with fairings tend to look like bugs to me to varying degrees. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. And they I look like little wasps and things. Yeah, and I'm just, I'm not a speed demon, you know, so yeah, most of the appeal is that performance, right? Like everyone talks mm-hmm. about the zero to 60 numbers and how well they corner and the inverted forks and, and yeah. all this stuff. And for me, it's just a tool to kind of putz around on. And because I'm into photography, something that's going to be pretty to take pictures of. Absolutely. Um, and so I ended up with the Irony 83, which um, I find to be a pretty light bike, but you know, we're, I mean, 200 pounds versus whatever you are. So it's going to be a different feel. Yeah. I've ridden, um, I love the Sportster 48. I test mm-hmm. rode one of those and you know, they're so low to the ground that it's very doable. You're in like a powerful squat. And I think that's something that like, I've just, I mean, maybe not for my primary bike. Um, but it's also one of those things where it's like, Oh, I wouldn't add that on considering my lifestyle now I'm like just wouldn't be smart to have another bike um but I yeah I've ridden a Dyna and those that was probably the heaviest biggest bike and I had some issues parking that sometimes so yeah yeah, the the Sportsters if I were to get a Harley that'd be pretty likely the one I'd get otherwise they do have those more um I haven't looked at their lineup because I don't really follow it that closely, but I do remember they were kind of putting out some more like naked flat track inspired looking bikes, a lot like those Indian bikes. And I feel like that, but that's basically what I already have theoretically, you know, at least like aesthetically. And um, I don't know how much more uh, the performance is optimized compared to mine. My bike actually only pumps out about like 74 or 75 horsepower, even though it's 803 cc. So it's like, (laughs) it's really, um, it's that low end torque, which is fun in the city. Well, so the two points that I wanted to make, why I kind of led into that and got distracted, yeah. was that um, I kept hearing this common theme from people that Harleys were expensive. Um, but because I, I wasn't actually like locked into Harley, I just always liked them. But I thought they were the same thing. I'm like, ah, they're too expensive. But mm-hmm. when I was shopping around, I actually didn't find them expensive unless I compared them to sports bikes. Um, which I wasn't considering because I didn't want a sports yeah. bike. But when I was comparing cruisers to cruisers, none of the cruisers I was looking at um, seemed to be beating them on price. So being mm-hmm. who I am, I decided to plot it all out. And I went to like every different manufacturer of cruisers uh, nice. and uh, found their price points and plotted them out and then plotted Harley. And it seemed like everything was pretty um, middle of the road until you got to the CVOs. Mm. Once you got to CVOs, Harley just like 
was killing everyone on the price. It was really, really expensive. Mm. Um, but I think that most people talk about the value proposition where it's like the tech you get with the Harley compared to some of the other bikes is mm-hmm. um, lower. And so even if the prices are comparable, they're not the same kind of value. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Or I feel like with Harleys, they're always trying to upsell you. It's like most people would be totally content with the 883. And I knew I would have, but I remember when I was talking to the house of Harley dealership, they're like, Oh no, you need, you need a 1200 bike. Like you're going to get bored of that real soon. Like they wanted to upgrade you to, Oh gosh, what, are, what's the one like a soft tail or something. <laughs> I think they were always trying to up, upsell to the soft tail and then, and then all the little special finishes and this and that, but you know, there's so many amazing sportsters that are, um, gently used. So I think that's the cool thing about that, that market. And there's so much room for customization and the sports culture is pretty fun. It's funny. Like I was so awesome. I, after you so often, I delve back into Harley culture and what people are talking about. And I'm like, I can't even keep up like what's cool. What's not, Oh, these people do baggers. And I'm just like, whatever. I just like to ride. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm the same way. Yeah. I, you know, my bike's probably going to be stocked for a while. The only thing I've put onto it is crash bars, mm-hmm. uh, the engine guards or whatever. Yeah. Uh, because I'm, you know, it's my first year riding and I've already dropped it twice. So if I hadn't had the engine guard on there, like if I did the whole Harley thing where you just swap the exhaust, well, now I'd have a brand new exhaust. that's all dinged up because I dropped it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then you got to wonder like how much extra are you squeezing out of that? Because I, that was a bike I was looking, I was weighing between the iron 883 or, or the scrambler when I was trying to decide. Uh, what bike to go with. Well, that and the um, Triumph Thruxton R, uh, which was even more than my Ducati. But yeah, I ended up with the Scrambler. And I think part of that was a little bit of familial influence because my mom's like, oh, you have to go Italian. I was like, what? When you first found out that I rode, you cried. (laughs) And now you've got an opinion about it? Like, come on, mom. But it's pretty fun. Me and my brother both riding around in Ducatis. So you said before that your family, you've got basically a family of motorcycle riders. So, well, kind of just, um, I, well, a handful of them. Um, my mom and dad don't ride. My dad used to ride like, you know, as any boy in the seventies would like illegally on a dirt bike through Arizona, I guess. <laughs> but my, yeah, my brother, he's three years older than me and he rides. And my uncle is my dad's brother, um, used to race. So, oh, and then, uh, he and my cousin used to run a motorcycle repair shop and I would hang around there in like seventh and eighth grade. And, uh, that was, that was pretty cool. They didn't keep it for super long, but, um, it was, it was a cool spot to hang around. So that's why I was thinking that it might be a little bit smoother for you than it is for other people to introduce your parents to the fact that you're riding a bike now too. Cause I mean, my family, my yeah. uncle rides, but he's basically the only one. So once I mm-hmm. told them that I'd gotten a bike, my mom was pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty against it, but you know. Yeah, my mom was very against it. And it's interesting, though, because I had kind of teased it because I bought a helmet and I told her it was so I could ride on the backs of bikes. And she didn't really react that much or like, obviously, she didn't like love it. And then when I I had like bought the bike and enrolled in the class without telling her and I didn't live at home, I was like, you're not the boss of me. I'm like, how old was I then? Uh, I don't know, like 23 or 24. And so I'm like, I don't have to get my mom's approval to do this. Uh, But I had, I guess I registered my info with their address when I bought the bike or when I got my, uh, like the title in my name. Yeah, the registration. And so this like flyer went to their house that said like, 
if you want to renew the extended warranty on your 2007 Honda Rebel. And she thought that my dad had bought a bike at first. And then it's like, look that bike up. I don't think my dad could fit on a 250 Honda Rebel. It's just, it's a little bike. Um, and then she figured out it was me and apparently she cried. I wasn't there, but she, you know, wept for me. But I said, you didn't weep when I was on the back of the bike. So that just means you don't trust me. <laughs> um, but she's definitely grown to, I mean, obviously, you know, everyone always worries a little bit and, uh, cause like, you know, you can do as much as you can and, and they can have faith in your abilities and how careful you are, but then there's always other people. And that's the big thing. It's just like, I do try my best to avoid risk. Um, but you know, I want to have a little bit of fun <laughs> and I, um, sometimes if you're a little bit too paranoid it kind of shoots you in the foot. I think um, I messed up quite a handful of times on my first bike and it was nice to have the rebel and not be too precious about it. And so I could do kind of like stupid things and it was small enough and lightweight enough to pick it back up. If I like slipped on gravel or just like all the stuff that happened on that bike. And it's just like, I mean, knock on wood, but stuff like that just doesn't really happen to me anymore. So it's kind of nice to be able to screw around on a beginner bike, um, or at least just build up some of that confidence in another way. Yeah. I think if my bike was more expensive, I'd probably be sad because, uh, like I said, I've dropped it twice. Once was in gravel. I was going through mm -hmm. a park and it was all paved and, uh, I turned right. All the gravel looked super hard packed. Everything looked good. Yeah. A few feet into it ended up being like six inches deep. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah, gravel will do you. Yeah, yeah. So that was kind of a pain. And then this last time was uh, just trusting a car. I came to a roundabout and um, I was much closer to the roundabout. There was no yield sign on my road to get onto the roundabout. And this truck uh, was further back. I'd come out. I started to lean in, getting ready to enter the roundabout. When I hear and see out of the corner of my eye, he revs up and speeds through so he can beat me into the roundabout because oh I wasn't going very fast, I think. And he wanted to speed through yeah. it. Um, and so I hit too much front brake and damn, I went. But, damn. Yeah. yeah. It's always, it's like, and in a roundabout, it's hard to change your mind in the middle of that. <laughs> it's pretty hard to, uh, to bounce back. Yeah. Luckily I hadn't actually quite entered it yet. I was, I was leaned over cause it's kind of hard to explain, but you know, I was getting ready to enter it. So I was on the left-hand side of the normal lane and leaning to the right, anticipating coming into the, the roundabout. Yeah. Like you're in your counter steering. Yeah. yeah. And then he just like, I heard and saw him speed up and looked over and I've been practicing a lot of emergency braking in parking lots, but I keep mm -hmm. doing it when I'm straight up and down, like you do in the class. Right. Yeah, so I haven't yeah. done any emergency. Nice exactly. And I haven't done any when I was leaned. <laughs> so I used an amount of pressure that would have worked if I was upright, but apparently it was yeah. too much for my lean angle and down I went, but Ouch. yeah, my, I know all my gear works now though. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And it's better than being hit by a car. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it was a box truck. So, you know, that would have been really terrible. No, thanks. Yeah, that's like you just like pick your like, how do I want? How do I want to hurt myself <laughs> this time? Yeah, I mean, I barely had a bruise. Um, everything was fantastic. Actually, I was so happy that I had invested in the riding pants with the armor. Um, yeah, you know, because the only thing that really hit the ground was my hip. Okay. Uh, so nice. Um, now, actually, I'm going to kind of back up a little bit because we kind of got right into it. And I should have introduced a little bit of like who you are and what you are, because like you said, we hadn't talked yeah. about your bike. And I yeah, think, a little bit of context. Yeah. 
we mentioned, or you, you write somewhere that, uh, or you describe yourself as a writer, a writer, mm-hmm. and a coffee enthusiast. Yeah. But I think that um, you're definitely more than that too, because you're also an entrepreneur, <laughs> right? Um, and you're a coder and a web developer. So mm-hmm. how, do you, how do you find time for all that? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Sometimes it depends on where you pick up the bio from because I nick some things and add things other places. But yeah, so my um I've been doing I've never had a traditional job, not since, you know, internships in college and that's not even quite a traditional job. Um so I've always had the well, sometimes it was a curse and then it's turned into a luxury once I, you know, got accustomed to it, but being in control in control of my own time. I'm lucky enough to be pretty self-motivated so I can um, kind of have a good hierarchy of a direction to go in. And I don't do all the things all the time, but pretty much all the stuff that I am listing places are things that I do on a monthly basis at the very least. So my most of my days or most of my working days consist of doing web development and e-commerce for customers and for myself because I run my own e-commerce store. And that was kind of one of the funny things is I keep using myself as a guinea pig. So half the time, like I'm trialing out something weird on my site. So it might be broken because I'd rather try it on mine, uh, learn all the kinks and then be able to recommend it or not recommend it to a customer. So I've always had my own personal projects and small things that I did alongside of client work to enhance it and just as a creative outlet. But yeah, I um, I was much more of an avid traveler before recently. Uh, so I would always kind of make a habit of getting out of town, um, especially in the cold. It's really beautiful to be in Wisconsin during the warmer season. So I tend to try to stick around then. And obviously my bike's here. But um, I was uh, traveling like sometimes twice a month for, for a year there. And um, uh, yeah, I just really enjoy like going around the world and I would shoot travel photos, uh, like street photography and stuff. And in terms of writing that whole, um, I've, I've, that's actually probably the thing, like the common thread throughout my whole life. Um, even before coding, <laughs> cause I did start that pretty young, but writing has always been the thing and I've never really pushed it as a career. Uh, and, you know, partly because it's not super lucrative and partly because uh, I kind of like to hold it sacred in a way, even though I've done like analytical writing and like literary analysis and um, in a different world, I would have been either a radio DJ or a music journalist, like very almost famous. That was like the dream. <laughs> uh, if you've ever seen that movie. Oh, it's a really good movie. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I still continue to write poetry and writing works its way into all the content that I do online as well. I do, um, you know, it's, it's not that, uh, deep (laughs) to be writing captions and stuff, but sometimes it is. Uh, but even more than that, scripting videos, I've been, uh, dabbling with more video essays, which I really enjoy. I did one on motorcycling and meditation, or it's more so, um, it's more so like peak performance and presence in motorcycling, um, but it has like meditative side effects and uh, it's more about stress reduction. So I always kind of like to wedge writing into what I'm doing. And and sometimes I'll even do that for clients. I'll do content strategy for them. But yeah, I kind of just do a little bit of everything, do what interests me and uh, to shuffle my time around accordingly. Yeah. So 
Um, speaking of writing, do you tend to write under a pseudonym or the reason I ask is that I actually tried to find some of your poetry, uh, because you, you had a whole long conversation on one of your podcasts about your, your poetry with the gentleman. I think he must be a musician. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I tried to find some of it to read it before talking Mm -hmm. to you, but I couldn't find it anywhere. So it's either behind paywalls or you're using a pseudonym. I, I was trying to figure out where it's at. Honestly, I should use a pseudonym. That's a good idea. I mean, obviously I've had the thought before, but I just figured my name is so good (laughs) that I should just use it. But um, yeah, I've only had a handful of pieces uh, published and they end up in literary journals, which um, are usually like university funded or they're kind of like, yeah, you have to either have the physical publication or have a subscription to the digital publication. I have, I'm willing to submit to online publications, but I was kind of trying to do literary publication the old fashioned way. And in that sense, uh, there's a traditional publication route. And I was just trying to go with kind of the more uh, the established norms of of what people go for, like Tin House or even like the New Yorker and these kind of institutions of poetry. Um, but it's something that I'm thinking the more I move on with my life. And like you said, I'm kind of like open. Um, when, when did you say I was? Well, I actually, I, I was quoting you. Um, yeah, you had said that you were both, on, you were on one hand private, but on the yeah. other hand, very transparent. Yeah, private and transparent. It's like, I like um, being authentic to people. I don't want to, uh, I don't put on a facade online because I can't. <laughs> I just I just can't. Um, maybe I like a couple cups of coffee would like get me high energy, but I tend to just like come as I am. And if anything, I'm a little bit more low key online than I am in person because it tends to be like how I riff with somebody. And um, I can get like hyper with my friends, but for the most part, when I'm just like sitting down filming a video by myself, it's like, it's just me. So, um, it usually ends up being pretty low key, but with the whole, I, and that's, that's something that I was thinking about a lot a couple months ago is just, is straddling these lines of sharing, but keeping things private. And poetry is one of those funny things where it's a very much like a time in your life thing. And it's, um, when you write over a long enough period of time and you continue to grow, you look back at your old work and you're just like, yeah, I stand by that then. (laughs) But if all this were to be published on a certain date, or if it were all compiled into one work, I'm so far removed from that by now. That's just kind of the slow form of traditional publication. I'm sure a lot of people who publish books feel that way about their books. Um, and think of if it goes on to become like somewhat notorious and then if you grow from that or at least just like don't really align with it as much anymore, it's kind of hard to talk about that stuff. But um, for the most part, a lot of my work is like uh, just kind of wrestling with language and using words more of for their cadence than just their textbook meaning. I mean, I do a lot of wordplay and stuff. So um, I have only had uh, two pieces published or at least one of them was in a journal and one of them was like a, f- Oh, a finalist for some sort of a something. Uh, but man, it's, it's hard to get stuff published and you usually have to pay to submit. So you throw a lot of money at that. <laughs> so long story short, it might be something that yes, either I start doing it under a pseudonym because it's such a stark contrast <laughs> from everything else that I do online. Um, and it, it's definitely still a, 
a part of me, but it's, you know, it's kind of like a little, maybe a little too much sometimes, I wonder. <laughs> no, I understand. I think that a, a lot of creative people go through, I don't necessarily know if it's always a poetry phase, but there's typically mm-hmm. some sort of a writing phase with a lot of people mm-hmm. who are creative or who enjoy do, doing creative things. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know I did when I was younger and I um, mean, I found a few of those poems as I've become an adult mm-hmm. and looked back on them and gone, oh my God, I'm glad there wasn't blogs or anything <laughs> like that um, back then because that stuff would have still been out there probably for people to read and embarrass me with. But uh, Yeah, that's the nice. That's also the nice thing about the, the slow publication process is you can kind of look back on things and decide whether it has like artistic merit outside of just like, these are my feels. So I definitely, I keep a journal and I find that really productive and um, yeah, obviously good for like mental health, but also for sometimes wrestling with those things turn into poetry. And I always think like, I don't want it to, I've never really thought of most of my creative endeavors as expressing myself. It's like, obviously that happens, there is self-expression, but I hope that most of the things I make go beyond me and they have value outside of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, did you ever consider, so well, I guess, let me back up in my looking into your social media and stuff, I see that you're active with, um, I think, I don't know if it's a cafe or what it is precisely, but they have a YouTube mm-hmm. presence and they're offering all of these um, like yoga and uh, online concerts and, and things like that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I forget what the place is called. It's called no studios, no studios. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you talked in one of your other podcasts about, wanting to have a physical presence for Great Lakes Supply Co. Mm-hmm. And where it would kind of marry um, the retail space with a cafe and make it a hangout spot too. Have you ever mm-hmm. considered adding in sort of that type of a live entertainment piece where people either do some spoken word or do some um, music, um, maybe comedy, whatever, just yeah. make it something like that. No studios as well. Take a little piece of that. Absolutely. I, um, I'd love to be a conduit for that kind of, um, for that kind of stuff. It's kind of, I I like doing things like that. And especially if I can enable other people's hosting, I have my own like hosting anxiety, like I could never, or it's very stressful to have an event of my own. But if I can support other people's events, that's like the perfect spot for me to be in. But I had, and hopefully no one goes and steals my idea, but the kind of grand scheme would be to own a whole building and have a cafe and retail space down below that also has, um, yeah, small events, concerts. There's a lot of cool small venues around Milwaukee. I don't know if it's like that in a lot of different places. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of spots that have um, bands play at a bar, but it's very strong here. Like a lot of original music. You're not going to hear just like constant cover bands. It'll be... Um, it's a really strong and interesting music scene and it's got a lot of people have their own style here and there's quite a few pretty cool venues. Some of them are breweries, some of them are just kind of fun little dive bars and with no studios, it's a co-working space and performance space. They have like a theater in there. They're very like upscale. It's like a pretty refined, it's a lot like Soho House. I've never been to one, but that's kind of the comparison. It's a Soho House of Milwaukee in a way. And I think it would just be so cool to be able to 
have a spot where, because motorcycle gear is expensive and that's a kind of high barrier to entry. And I'd want to do the fancy little cafe racer stuff. So I'd want people to feel like they could come in, grab a cup of coffee, be low key, and then they could come in for other reasons um, and for there even to be workshops. And I think being a female owner of a space would be really helpful because um, it could just be like a good hub for, for community building and, and, a, and a cool spot for, for people to go. I like, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of that vibe in Milwaukee, but there's not nothing quite like what I'm imagining. <laughs> yeah. Well, has the current world situation given you any sort of pause about that idea or maybe giving you some new ideas for what you can do in case we ever find ourselves in a situation again where meeting together in large groups of people may not be possible for months at a time. Yeah. Um, well, it's definitely made me happy that I didn't try to start a cafe, you know, this year. <laughs> yeah, right. And I knew that wasn't going to be on the table. And who knows, it might be, I do love the flexibility or flexibility of um, operating online. And, uh, it's cool. Cause then I, I just mailed off an order to, um, Poland for the first time. Like there's a very global audience, uh, at least from my experience of being online, people follow me from all over. I think, a, uh, it's only about 40% or maybe less of people who tune in are from the U S uh, at least from my YouTube channel. And when it comes to the whole kind of uh, in-person and scale of events, I, I've i never been, well, other than concerts, I don't often like to be around like big, big groups of people, um, at least not all the time. <laughs> so I think I, it seems like small spaces or smaller venues or like more low-key places can still thrive in this um, kind of climate. Because even I've been dropping in on thrift stores and stuff and people do things by appointment and they just kind of meter the number of people who are in. So I think, I think it's still doable and I'm pretty confident that we'll, we'll work through this soon enough and hopefully it'll be fresh enough in our minds that we'll have a good protocol for, for getting it taken care of. Should it happen again? Um, it seems like stuff like this is on a longer timeline though. I don't know if there'll be like more viruses more often, but it seems like it's kind of a every hundred years or so thing. So hopefully we'll be like all set for, <laughs> for my, the rest of my lifetime. Well, I think whether people believe that global warming is man-made <laughs> or if it's just a natural cycle, whatever the case may be, um, the world is warming and, one article I read was talking about, for instance, reindeer in Siberia. And as the, um, the temperature was going up, the permafrost wasn't re-freezing. And so deeper layers and deeper layers of the permafrost were getting exposed uh, every summer. And there were some reindeer that got uh, defrosted, essentially. And they had apparently had some sort of contagious disease that oh, went wow. and ran rampant through reindeer uh, hmm. populations after they, they popped up. So I can only imagine it's going to be a matter of time before something similar happens with, with humans. Um, mm -hmm. And even if it doesn't happen directly with humans, you see with the current virus, how a bat, uh, you know, 
disease mutates into a human yeah. disease. So I don't know. I, I tend to think that it's going to happen more often than every hundred years. So I think maybe, mm-hmm. maybe we're going to look Especially at with the global society. Like that's the thing is like, it would have been contained in, in maybe other eras, but now we have such, such common and affordable, frankly, global travel. It's just like, yeah. It's kind One of like day away time. from Tokyo. You know, yeah, I'm in I'm in geez. Phoenix, Arizona, and I'm a day away from being in Tokyo mm-hmm. uh, or Paris or, you know, Argentina, wherever. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't um, I haven't brought that into because uh, I've been just kind of focusing on yeah the e-commerce end of things because that's been the great opportunity. I was like, oh, I already had the groundwork laid down, and so I figured I just uh, refocus my efforts there. And now I'm in a bit of a phase where I'm doing more client work and I'm a little bit less in my, my, um, my sites. Now I've like greased the wheels enough that it's pretty low maintenance and I only have to fulfill like a handful of the products. Um, I outsource some of the fulfillment and it's helpful because then people in Europe can get things faster. Um, but then it's also great that, um, you know, when I'm fulfilling things, I like to write people little notes and stuff and, it, so it, it's helpful to, to straddle a couple of different methods for that e-commerce. Um, and now that that's all, all set, it's, uh, it's not too much maintenance to keep that going while I continue on other projects. Because I think I do um, enjoy running Great Lakes Supply Co., but I never sat there and thought like, oh, I would love to do this full time because I do really like variety and I crave variety. It was just kind of one more cog in my, or one more like feather in my hat of ways for me to um, have a little bit of passive income or multiple income streams. That was the, the biggest motivator was me wanting to have financial freedom and to get out of student loan debt. Um, and so I did like tons and tons and tons of research on that way back when. And honestly, like that's why Great Lakes Supply Co. is why the YouTube channel's here. Um, I suppose the only thing I was doing before Great Lakes Supply Co. with feeling online was a handful of self-portraits. Um, but I never really felt that Instagram was all that lucrative. And it's a slow growth on there. So that's more value added. It's more like creativity or to, to chat with people. It's more of like a direct line to talk to people. I think that's what Instagram's really great for connections yeah. i've met so many great people through instagram and if i hadn't been doing that then um they wouldn't have found me i wouldn't have found them no you're, you're totally right and i mean the reason i wanted to ask you specifically about um, the current situation and what you might have um been considering or not was because i feel like you've got a really mm-hmm. good grasp on making money online and if anyone was gonna uh <laughs> figure out a way to kind of marry a physical presence um, Mm -hmm. with the flexibility to continue on in a time when you can't really meet in a specific place all the time consistently. I feel like it's going to be someone from like your generation or from with your skill set that already Mm -hmm. is kind of entrenched in that digital age. And then you're moving towards the brick and mortar versus someone who's been entrenched, entrenched in brick and mortar and they're trying to Mm -hmm. develop out towards uh, the web, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and I always thought it'd be super fun to have like a drive up window on a cafe and to have, um, uh, I was talking about the whole concept of owning a whole building and then having like the upstairs be an Airbnb. So kind of making things a whole curated experience. So people don't just come in to hang around. They come in because they know the person behind the bar is going to give them great Intel on where to hang out is going to be able to, um, foster like a relationship with people. There's a cafe in town 
on this kind of cool bohemian street called Brady Street. And they are renowned for like having really consistent baristas that have tons of personality and people just love coming by and the coffee's good, but the, the connection is even better. So I would love to kind of foster that in the motorcycle community because it is very strong in Milwaukee and it's, it's relatively small. It's not hard to, Oh, now, oh am, am I dying? Is yeah. dying? Battery low. Oh no. Okay. Well, hopefully we'll still, maybe we can like crop that out. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't really matter if it's up there. Yeah. Um, I just don't want it to die on you. So if, I don't know if you want to swap it out or. Yeah. Unfortunately on this camera, I only have one battery, but I think it should last a little while longer, but um yeah, I would love to be something like that in the in the motorcycle community. And it's not always just like me behind the bar, but it would be cool to just be like, hey, swing by, like I'm here. Um, I know Letitia Klein, um, speaking of Harley people, she uh, started a, a bar in her town in like Kentucky. And that seems like it's been like a really amazing experience for her from what I've seen online. She's kind of now this whole like kind of historic restoration person she's like very entrenched in improving their town and and making it a real destination and and preserving it so I think that's a cool thing you can be a cultural hub and it's tough I am to be honest I wouldn't ever bother with like hosting digital events because I myself haven't been really attending very many Uh, for someone who works online all the time and and oftentimes my creative endeavors drive me to the computer again when I'm just trying to have a good old time, I tend to step away from it for sure. So it's a tough thing to to merge those. I think that's why riding is so great because it's pretty social distancing approved. So I could even be a hub of place for people to meet up, to grab their coffee and they get out. Yeah. Well, I think that, um, you know, I, another example sort of, I guess, of you sort of merging digital in real life is the... Um, that team that you helped out with their, their marketing when they were doing a flat track build, I think it was, it was a high school yeah, team. Yeah, it was a high school team. Yeah. yeah. That's a cool program. Um, it's called the build program. It's been going on for, I want to say maybe it can't be 11 years, can it? Maybe nine years or something. Um, and only a couple years ago, they started an all girls team and it just so happened to be from the high school that I went to high school at. And so I joined that the second year and, uh, yeah, this year was kind of funny. Uh, the, um, yeah, the build moto program was kind of funny this year because that's like, you just have to work on that in person. Mm -hmm. And it was too bad. Um, it's, it's too bad that, is the season kind of fell off funny and it was everyone was just grappling and trying to kind of navigate the new world so uh we couldn't really do like a proper send-off with the high school girls but it's a it's it's a really cool program i myself am not the most uh technical savvy when it comes to the bike i mean this year i've been doing some of my own maintenance and that's been really fun uh just like simple things um and you know every year you learn more so it's so cool that those kids have that opportunity to they start with a, a barn find or a scrap bike. And actually this year, Harley donated a bike to our team and all the other teams had Royal Enfield because Royal Enfield was a sponsor. But we worked out of Harley University. So we're just like, can we have a Harley? <laughs> so uh, we started well, I think we started with the Street 500 and uh, started turning that into flat track racing bike. So the girls are very hands-on and it's mostly just um, the other tech leaders uh, showing them the ropes. And um, part of 
the kind of full experience because we want to teach them all these really marketable skills. And part of that was the marketing and that that's what I was involved in. It's kind of teaching them how to use, um, you know, uh, social media scheduling tools and optimizing for good, like keywords. And uh, I even had them like make a little website. So yeah, it's, it's, it's cool to kind of add a whole 360 approach to all that. Yeah. And I hear you guys took like third place, right? Yeah, there's a couple of different um, ways that they uh, do the awards. Like some of them are for the, uh, like, they, they just do points different ways. The race itself is only a portion of the overall score. So, yeah, I think, um, and then there's even, they have to do kind of like a whole pit thing where they, like, change out a tire. And, yeah, it's pretty cute. Okay. So, um I think I read somewhere that one of the technical schools does all the engine work. Does that sound right? Yeah. And yeah. It's just a local or Milwaukee or technical college. Yeah. Yeah. So do they have much interaction with the, the technical college or is it basically they send it off and then the, uh, the folks over there work on it and send it back? They um, will just send back the engine, but there's oftentimes when we need to like fabricate a part or do other miscellaneous things. And then we get to go and kind of do a field trip and make something at the tech school. So we did that at um, the technical college and gosh, what the heck did we make? We made just this like little uh, washer thing that had to go on. Hmm, I don't remember what part it was. I knew at the time and now I've forgotten, <laughs> but I, I have some cool video of the girls working on that. Well, and you say you're not that technical, I mean, not that uh, mechanical, but mm-hmm. it's yeah, funny because one of your, um, I guess your your most viral video was basically um, somewhat mechanical, I guess. Well, maybe it's cosmetic when you're swapping out numbers, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the number panels, it's all like just a little puzzle. Nothing was um, performance optimization or performance enhancements. Okay. You know, personally, I think the number plates are kind of ugly myself in, mm-hmm. in general um uh that's one of the reasons i think the harley flat track one has the same thing i think it's a uh, either i don't know if it's blank or if it has the same number on it but either way it takes up a substantial amount of real estate on the side of the bike that to me isn't that appealing but if they're not making it for me mm-hmm. right they're making it for people who want a flat track um, yeah and it's kind of a funny kitschy concept because at least with the cafe racer it's like those things are on the street i don't think i've ever seen someone flat track race a cafe racer and if you are willing to mod your bike to flat track race you probably are not worried about whether or not it already has a number panel um but yeah the um the cafe racer mod it, it comes stock with those 54 panels and it's actually beyond just yeah those uh, numbers on the side it's a whole interrelated little thing and a lot of people didn't know how to approach that or how to do it so I think I mean even so that that uh it's funny that that video went viral because it's not super relevant to a broad audience at all like it's not really um sometimes things just happen that way and just a lot of people tune in and sometimes I'll do things on purpose that I know will probably but, but the things that you do on purpose that um, you have a feeling will go over well tend to go well in terms of like getting uh, occurring, you know, a decent amount of views and high watch time tends to be things that are long, like a long game. Um, things that are more tutorial based, things that are more um, how to and yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Am I, 
I've been talking for so long, my brain's falling out. <laughs> oh, no, no, it's, it's all right. I uh, I know I tend to go along with these things because, like I said, I, I deep dive so much into people as much as I can. And I um, am sort of naturally nosy, but I also believe in minding your own business. So I love these interviews because it's like an opportunity to be nosy while also minding my business because it's like the person agreed ahead of time to be interviewed. Mm. So they're kind of expecting you to, you know, ask them things. Um, sure. But, uh, you know, I, I kind of wanted to talk about, well, a lot of things I want to talk about. One of the things I want to talk about was you were talking about the interaction that you have with the general public online and how a lot of it is really good and that's a lot of community building but then you also have the other side of it where it's like just some dude popping in to say hey i'm going to take you out uh for coffee you know 30 times in a row has your has your experience been improving since you've been talking about it at all uh i don't know um i think because i also just took a break from being online so i think there was just like uh, less activity for me. So I was like top of the feed way less often. Um, but I think it's funny. I go through different uh, ebbs and flows of being more, I don't want to say sensitive to it, but more dialed into that energy because I can guarantee it happens to a lot of people and at a much larger scale because I have a pretty uh, small following. And there's people with, you know, 10 times as much. And I can guarantee that the commentary is probably 10 times as much. And so they're just maybe better equipped to filter it out or, um, I don't know, uh, they, maybe they find it funny, but I just like sometimes, and, and it's like, well, I'm posting myself online. So I'm obviously I'm expecting someone to look at it, but I sometimes just wish that it could just be invisible <laughs> and not be seen. So it's kind of funny to straddle these lines of, I want to make things and to incentivize making them. I want them to, you know, help prom promote my business. I want them to help other people. But then at the same time, you have to grapple with like, how much energy do you want coming your way? And depending on your headspace, you're more or less equipped to do that. So I definitely feel like that stuff is like not bothering me now lately. I just had kind of a mindset shift, but also I have, you know, been posting a little bit less, but there's always, um, I don't know, I guess you just kind of like train yourself into, into navigating it and dealing with it. And I think also around that time that I had, I, so I basically made this video about, uh, just like being a female content creator and grappling with, um, yeah, privacy versus sharing and, um, you know, being vulnerable with people, but not going too far for your own sake. Um, and I think also just like the pandemic era has made in-person interactions so like high stakes and strained too. And so I'm so unaccustomed to talking to people that I think um, sometimes it can be a bit much just like walking down the block and like people hollering at you and stuff. And, and the bike gets a lot of attention. So I don't know what my point of all this is, but yeah, it's just, it's just a thing that you work through and deal with. And um, most of the time, it's not that deep, you know, I, and if people do a bit too much, you can always just block them. But I don't really do that that often. Yeah, I just, you know, people have different approaches to it. And I was curious what yours had been lately. Because um, you obviously were thinking about it as when you made the video talking about sort of, you know, being a woman content creator and stuff. Um, and I've seen some people take the approach of, 
you know, a lot of these people making these inappropriate comments or these mean comments uh, just need attention or whatever. And sometimes they'll kind of come back at them genuinely and say, Hey, you hurt my feelings. Um, and then oh, also yeah. be, but also be kind to them and say, you know, I'm sure that things are going on in your life too. And, you know, I can understand that. And it ends up turning into a positive experience at the end of the day. Um, and yeah. then some people it, see it like a skill, right? You're going to be online. There's all kinds of different mm -hmm. people. And if as long as you put forth the effort to kind of like practice um, not caring so much, I guess, because mm -hmm. it's inevitable. Uh, some people are able to develop that skill. And I just didn't know if you had a specific approach you were using or, um, or not. Yeah, I try, to, I try to take things at face value and like uh, respond like matter-of-factly. I've never really been too uh like hot to fight people on the internet um mostly well because i just don't care <laughs> but also uh because even if it's a super specific like personal attack um i just like don't engage but the thing is sometimes if you leave it up other people will respond to it so it can kind of get a little bit messy but i can tell if people are just trolling or just trying to like get a reaction um for the most part uh, but I'll try to like, if people are using real words and sentences, I'll try to like uh, engage in the conversation. And, um, you know, the, the oftentimes it's just like regular constructive criticism. So that's just a regular conversation. Sometimes people just say it a little bit harsh and you're just like, oh, you know, just say it like that. Um, but the, I haven't been um, the brunt of too much criticism lately, but I think I've just been kind of like tuning out, just like making the thing, putting it up checking on like the first few comments. I'm not like super controversial, <laughs> um, but you know, I've been, I've been roasted on things before. I actually deleted a video or I privated it because I made this video mostly because the terminology I used uh, confused people. And I didn't think about how globally it might be used differently than colloquially. Um, I was using like scooter and moped interchangeably and people got pretty butthurt about that. And in the Midwest, a lot of people use them interchangeably, but most people globally consider moped like a motorized like bicycle and a scooter, like a Vespa or a, or a scooter. And I use them interchangeably, so that um, was some confusion. And then people just thought that I had a very, and it's so funny because I'm like, I do travel a lot of places and I've seen a lot of bikes a lot of places. Um, and I, I had for a minute there, I was trying to get out of the country like once a year or so. And they just said I had such an American perspective on motorcycles versus mopeds and how, you know, not everyone, not, it's not feasible for everyone to have a motorcycle, but I just always figured uh, the whole kind of thesis of the video was you're assuming a similar amount of risk. You're still, um, vulnerable to the same kind of accidents with cars and then i was saying how at least in motorcycle culture people are very rigorous about the gear it's like funny that someone will be screaming by on their moped and flip-flops and a t-shirt and no one's concerned about them but if you are on your motorcycle in a tank top everyone's is gonna freaking call your mom <laughs> i i usually wear the, I, i'm pretty good about the gear and especially well obviously the helmet but it's just interesting the differences between like moped and motorcycle culture and that was what the video was about and i got kind of roasted but i i probably could have just left it up and maybe it would have been like a great little viral moment or something from people hating on it um because i was surprised how strongly people felt about that but 
I don't know. It's kind of one of those things is I want to like perpetuate positivity. And I guess I was kind of a little bit harsh on, on mopeds or scooters in that video. So I was like, ah, I don't want this to be my legacy. <laughs> this well, is not the hill I'll die on. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I heard you mention that before too. And and I mean, I lived in Italy for three years, so I've got a lot of mm-hmm. experience with people on mopeds and yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, at least where I was living for that period of time, it was primarily like high school kids, you mm, know, had yeah, mopeds. Yeah, and it was sort of because of the partially because like tiered licensing systems and, and all these different mm. things. But also um, it's like when you were in high school, you're one of the cool kids if you had a moped, oh, cute. you know, because a lot of kids ride just regular yeah. bikes. Um, so I think maybe there's some nostalgia too tied up in the whole um, mm. moped versus uh, scooter thing. Um, but you know, as far as your safety talk, that's interesting because I think I'm, this is only top of mind because the Arizona safety statistics just came out Oh, interesting! and I was kind of looking over those. And one of the main factors, um, in motorcycle deaths and injuries was speed. And Mm. the reality is a moped doesn't go very fast. Yeah. You know, so true. there is Very some true. reduced risk, I suppose. In and that's more of how you um, decide to ride. Exactly. For sure. Just like alcohol, the number two one I think is alcohol, right? Yeah, uh, or being like, impaired what? with pot or whatever else it is. And if you're going to go riding impaired, how many how many pot accidents are there? <laughs> I have no idea because they don't really distinguish. I mean, that's one of the bad. I think probably people mix, uh, and that's probably the more the recipe. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just. Yeah, I don't know. I I just, you know, they they put even um, medications, I think, lumped in there. So, oh, yeah, it's it's tough. I get weird on on like Advil or Sudafed sometimes, not Advil, but like, uh, (laughs) you know, you get get a little uh, Dayquil and I I can get a little loopy on Dayquil. So, (laughs) or if you're just tired, sleep deprivation is a pretty big issue too with people riding or nighttime visibility. My contacts sometimes, if I'm wearing my contacts for too long, and if I'm not wearing a helmet that has a nice, um, you know, not suction, but, <laughs> uh, it's nice and enclosed. There's not too much like wind flow on my eyes. And then, cause yeah, cause that can like mess with your vision and there's a lot of things that can go wrong. <laughs> oh my gosh. My dog is hacking over here and I don't know if everyone oh, no. can hear it, but uh, a little bit anyway. Um, I was curious too, how long your writing season was in Wisconsin? Um, cause I thought I'd heard that your only form of transportation really was the motorcycle. Yeah, that's, that's the primary way I get around, but I'm also lucky enough. And I understand that like not everyone can live this lifestyle, but not only do I like set my own hours, I can theoretically work from anywhere where I do office is only like a mile from where I live. So if it really came down to it, I've got the bus, I could walk if I had to, or I could stay home if it's just bitter cold. Cause there've been times when it's dangerous to be outside. And so I have just chosen to stay home because it's just too crazy to be out there. But the riding season kind of just depends on how hard you are because sometimes there can be pretty big swaths of time when there's no snow or salt on the ground and you can ride and it's 40 degrees Fahrenheit outside and you just have to really bundle up like you mean it. And uh, I would not go on the freeway in those temperatures, but I've definitely kicked around town. And actually, my first moto vlog, it was freezing temperatures. <laughs> I think it was like at least 32 degrees or maybe cooler than that with the wind chill and everything. How big of an issue is ice out there when you're riding? Ice is pretty serious, especially because like depending on the time of day, there can be 
you know, the sunny spots are totally fine. And then the spots there in the shade are completely iced over. It can be a whole different, I've seen before the sun is melting the snow all around like the shadows. And then there'll be little like snow patterns from the trees. If like, if the, um, if the temperature drops like really quick or it's such a big difference in between. Um, but yeah, I, um, I try not to go out if there's ice on the streets. Um, but I do know people who have. <laughs> yeah. Well, I used to live in Illinois and, um, Ew. Not oh no! But, <laughs> you know, it, Illinois was one of those interesting places that I was happy to have had the experience, but I'm also equally mm-hmm. happy to have not stayed. Um, yeah, you're like that was a chapter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just like uh, I did corn detasseling one year um, for work, and it was absolutely miserable. And I'm happy that I did it, but I will never do it again. Um, but anyway, walking to school. Uh, out then out there was the same sort of deal except you know they don't really salt the sidewalks as thoroughly as they salt the roads um Mm. so it would be one of those situations where you're walking you're in the sun sidewalk seems fine and then you get to like one of those areas you cross the street and it's got the um the handicap uh ramp thing yeah and it would be completely iced over incredible Uh, yeah yeah and end up dying uh like you have backpacks you know crack your head open (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's it's too easy. Um, there, I went to school at UW-Madison, and Madison was windy. There would be frost inside the doors when you go in a building. It was insane sometimes going to class. And they it would really have to be a situation for them to cancel all the classes. It would used to be like best-case scenario, a half-day cancellation because – you get frostbite after 20 minutes of being outside. I'm like, well, that's how long some people have to walk to get to class. So yeah. that's on you guys. <laughs> oh. So um, I know that you'd said you'd done Irish dance. Mm-hmm. And was that just in high school? Did you continue that into college at all or? No, I didn't do it in college. Do you think, do you think people care about me Irish dancing? <laughs> well, what I think is uh, it, it's interesting that you're now the second person who's done like competitive dance that I've interviewed oh, and I've only okay. done like six or seven interviews. Um, so I was just, uh, you know, you talked about it on one of your other interviews and, and you'd mentioned that um, I think that along with motorcycling, people were kind of pushing you not to do anymore or something. And Oh yeah. Well, Irish dance, I pretty much uh, stopped when I graduated high school um, just because I, my soul was never in it. It was fun for sure. And I'm just not that competitive a person. And I, especially with athletics, um, I definitely excel more intellectually and um, in other things. So I was totally fine with letting that go. And I do have some lifelong friends from it, but um, I think it, it taught me a lot of like great lessons and like good things about posture and about um, not crying on stage or whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, motorcycling, uh, I had wanted to do it in college. Everyone at Madison had scooters. <laughs> Did you hear that? <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Everyone in Madison had scooters. I'm like, I don't want a scooter. I want a motorcycle. Um, but yeah, at that time, the people around me just like, I guess, didn't have very much faith in me. My friends and um, friends' parents even, people like, oh my gosh, don't get a motorcycle. And then I think um, as I aged out of like school environments. Um, and you know, some people just kind of fall off your network because 
I mean, you had things in common with them then, and uh, maybe you do less so, or it was more of, oh, we saw each other a lot, so we had rapport. So basically, as I just got older, I just was around more people who, I mean, I know a lot of people who ride, and um, it just kind of it just kind of worked out that way. <laughs> yeah, so what I wanted to kind of lead to was at what point do you think that um, you had that change, that switch where, you know, the people trying to influence you not to do something that you may have mm. liked or wanted to do, I get, yeah. where, where you um, made that turn where you were just like, you know what, I want to do this. I'm going to do it regardless. Yeah. That's actually kind of interesting because that like plays into a big passion of mine, which is like personal development and just kind of always uh, just just always like curating your network, curating your values, just being aligned basically. And I think that for me is much easier to do when I have a smaller network and I can do, I don't even have to audit my networks anymore because I intuitively pick people who it's not just like-minded because I have plenty of friends that I have healthy debates with and stuff, but you know, similar values. And I think for me, minimalism played a big role in that. I had, I was like, <laughs> this is kind of like a specific life stuff. But after I graduated college, there was kind of like zero structure. Um, and I was freelancing, but I just had all this weird um, kind of just like grappling with, I'm in charge of all my time. Before I was in charge of a pretty decent chunk of my time. And I was doing a little bit of freelance projects in college, but you know, everything was formed around the existing architecture of classes and exams and um, other work schedules and just stuff like that. And then all of a sudden I had all my time to myself and it was just kind of one of those weird things where it's like, when you're relaxing, you feel anxious about not working. When you're working, you feel like you're not doing something right or that you're forgetting something. And when you're out with your friends, you want to be home. And when you're home, you want to be out with your friends. And so it was kind of one of those things where it was like a hurdle I had to get through to decide um, just to like, I always liked myself and I liked my hobbies and things, but it was kind of just getting clear on like where I am is the best place to be. And I'm like, you're doing the right thing. And it's just these like mindset shifts that have to happen. So I kind of had like a dark night of the soul in like uh, winter. It always happens in winter, winter 2016, when I was like house sitting for my grandma. So I was like, she's in Arizona. I'm house sitting at her house. I'm living in a grandma's house by myself. I had no car. And all my friends just lived other places. Some of them were in Madison and I was just like kind of big transitional moments. So I just spent like a ton of time by myself. And that's when I delved just deep into like intellectual podcasts and just reframing all that stuff. So I think that helped lay the groundwork because later that year I did eventually um, get my bike and license. Let me think, when was that? I guess that was, yeah, April of that year, I got my bike and license. I'm sure it's no coincidence that it was after I just came really resound in my own interests and uh, just less influenced by the people around me. And I think that's the funny thing about the online thing too, is I felt like I had to take a step away for a minute because I was feeling too impressionable. <laughs> and I think that's the thing. It's not so much sensitive because like the commentary or other people saying stuff, it's not always people like personal attacks. That's like that with friends. They're not always trying to bring you down, but they just like instill these little seeds of doubt and 
they'll question like, oh, why did you say that? Or, you know, it's all through these other filters of other people's interpretations. And actually, I read the book, The Four Agreements, and that was pretty, I read it at the perfect time. And it hit me pretty profoundly. I feel like books like that, they have to hit you at just the right time. And I read it all in like one day. And that distilled for me all these disparate little bits of wisdom that I was trying to conceptualize. And it's funny how this mindset shift, mindset shift could get me into writing, which could then like open up this whole other world of purpose for me. Cause I've always been pretty driven when it came to things I like to do for work. Like I haven't had too much um, wandering when it came to professional skills. Cause I'm lucky that the stuff that I was interested in, people want to pay for. And that doesn't always happen. But when it came to kind of like uh, assembling a crew or like building community, I was, you know, never quite exactly in the right place. I always felt like I liked, it was kind of like the classic, like my friends don't go to this school. (laughs) And then like, by the time I look back on it, I'm like, oh, wow, what great people that I wasn't engaging with in this sphere that I could have. So yeah, long story short, yeah, mindset shifts. They're pretty important. Well, I mean, that that's awesome. And you are probably the third woman now who I've, in, who I've interviewed who's had um, a similar sort of mindset shift. You know, when I was talking yeah. to Doodle, um, she was saying that after, you know, one of her breakups, like she originally had been really kind of following along with what her boyfriends had wanted to do and mm-hmm. hadn't really developed a big um, or hadn't emphasized her own um, desires and um interests, you know, and then she had this Mm. breakup and then all of a sudden she found that she really enjoyed focusing on the things that she really was interested in and she liked being single. And now she was like, yeah, just doing all this stuff. And it really kind of, um, it just, yeah, it was, it was a mental shift where now she's thinking less about what other people are are thinking that she should do and more about what she wanted to do and kind of following through with that. And then same thing with uh, Nina from she wolf, you know, like her, she got a different, relationship and this guy was in a band and so she found herself alone a lot and mm. um developed a stronger sense of independence um through that and anyway yeah. i just find that stuff interesting i think that's so important because i've always been someone who enjoyed alone time and i think it's hard to do that uh in certain environments like if you live with people i've been living alone since 2016 and I think that's been really helpful because I'm in control of all my time and there's no pacifiers in the form of human beings. And so it's great to, and like, yeah, I was house sitting alone and that really helped me just kind of like face things head on and, and things can get really sad and dark sometimes, but I think it's really important to be able to, to grapple with that and move on. And then um, I've, it just alone time is so important and cultivating your own interests and being like, okay, would I really be doing this if... If I, you know, had the, uh, if I could have my ideal day, would this include that? And I think it's always good to reassess. And I think that's just kind of also what happens, hopefully, as people age, you're less in these social environments. And even as like minuscule as peer pressure can be, um, if you just happen to be around certain people, it's like you're the summation of the five people around you the most. And if there's just like a little bit of things that aren't quite ideal, maybe they're not as ambitious or empathetic or as whatever as you need them to be as intellectually stimulating, whatever it is, um, or as calming. Like, I feel like I was around a lot of chaotic people and now that's just like not the case. (laughs) And that kind of stuff can get a bit addicting. It's just so interesting and important to assess that stuff and have enough alone time to really think about it and really, um, 
because like if you if you don't have the alternative then you don't really know there's there's it's like even what do you like to eat for dinner like some people just eat whatever the other person they're with is eating and, and don't even get their favorite foods in they're just a little um too agreeable i think that happens with women kind of a lot actually agreeableness it's not always a bad thing it can be very helpful in like compromise but you don't need to compromise on everything <laughs> well yeah i think people see it as compromising on small things. And so it's not that big of a deal. Um, but even small things, I think, add up if you look back on your life and it's, you know, yeah. all these tiny compromises at some mm-hmm. point. Well, now a lot of your day has been comp- uh, compromised, yeah. right? And then yeah. if you look back at your life and you magnify those days throughout the week, it's like, oh my gosh, I've been compromising so much. And even though it seems yeah. little, and it's not over time. That's why journaling is so important. There's so much stuff that I look back on. I was like, wow, I was really kidding myself then. Or it's good if you are feeling a little bit um, like you can't trust, not that you can't trust your reality, but that you're filtering it through some kind of, you're like trying to mislead yourself. (laughs) And sometimes I think people who compromise a lot will do that. And yeah, that's why it's so important to just like reflect, see where you're at. And because that kind of stuff breeds resentment. And a lot of people don't know how to navigate that. Like, you know, if you're always compromising with a family member or something, like if I were like, oh, my mom's going to cry, so I'm not going to ride a motorcycle. That would have been such a huge compromise. And I was confident enough that I wouldn't be like disowned for it and that she would warm up to it and that um, that she was like emotionally mature enough <laughs> to work through it. And I'm lucky with that with both my parents. I have great relationships with them because they're just, um, well, they're just great people. And I think that's the hard thing is I think a lot of people maybe do too much compromising and agreeableness because they're not confident that the other person can like handle it. But you'd be surprised if this is a sign someone needs, this is your sign. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Give the person a chance to, to react. Cause I think, I think a lot of people try to like control others reactions. It's like that with online stuff. I'm like, Oh, well, I'm not going to say this because I'm trying to like control their perspective. And to some extent that's important. That's part of branding. But to another extent, it's just like, how much do you need to censor? Like I had some F bombs in my most recent video and I was like, oh, I could censor these or just like clip out that, that part. But I don't know, that's just how it happened. <laughs> so I just let things unfold. And if someone is, is too, um, too sensitive for that, then maybe they're not my people. So it's kind of nice, these little, little ways to, to weed people out. Yeah, I mean, it's all about finding your tribe, as I've heard it described before. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. You know, it's not you don't want to find everyone. You know, not every, you won't be able to please exactly. everyone. Um, yeah. So you want to build the people around you who you know appreciate you for you, and um, you don't have to pretend too much because it gets tiring. And if you're going to do this in the long term, you want it to be uh, sustainable. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You want it to be sustainable and something you're proud of, and and all that, and a good reflection of of your values. So I'm like yawning and talking at the same time. I know it's a couple hours later there. So yeah, it's not that late though. Is it not? It's, it's I mean, it's 823, okay. <laughs> but I haven't had dinner. So I'm very sleepy. Oh, well, I'll try to keep you too much longer then. I got a couple more direct questions, I guess. Um, yeah. I rapid fire. A lot of people. Um, I try to make them like interrogation style, which is why I try to make it more of a conversation and try to lead into questions I have versus mm. just directly asking them. Cause I think it gets kind of, you know, answer, an- ask, answer, ask, answer. And it's just, I don't know, not appealing to me anyway. But do you think that big brands um, 
have a place in trying to encourage more women to ride? And if so, what do you think that they could do better um, than they are now? Hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting, something that I got kind of hype about and um, butthurt that they didn't ask me, no, (laughs) Um, but I've seen high fashion brands and jewelry brands introducing the concept of female motorcyclists more often. I saw like a Cartier ad and it was a woman on a Triumph, like wearing the bracelet and it's this, um, it's this uh, nail it looks like a, like a nail that you hammer, it's just wrapped around the wrist. And I'm like, that's perfect. Or it should, maybe it should have been like a wrench or something, but they are notorious for this like nail bracelet. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. And it, it kind of just plants the seed. I even remember, um, in oceans eight, uh, Kate Blanchett was riding a triumph Thruxton or, um, or Bonneville or something like that. I think it was the Thruxton, but just these little things just to kind of give people the idea because it's really not that far-fetched and I see women doing that all the time. I think it is helpful for motorcycle brands to showcase women in context, but um, it should just happen like naturally for the most part. I think one thing that's a bit of a bummer about the history of Ducati, and I don't, I see a lot of individuals. I don't, I do follow companies, but I feel like they end up not being in my algorithm because I think that's just how business accounts often work too, is they get less engagement. And so I don't get a whole lot of like corporate content coming my way. Um, but I know historically Ducati has been, it's like they got the girls in the little red dresses. And it's like, there's women around, but they're never really like, marketed as the rider I think that's why the scrambler lineup was a bit more refreshing because it was just everyone was kind of presented the same way it was like everyone could be a rider these people are having a fun time on the beach and it appealed to lifestyle and it appealed to everyone because I don't think it'll a lot of people seem dead set on wanting like 50 50 in terms of like everyone who rides and I think there's always going to be just like a natural distribution that's more skewed to men. That's just kind of the nature of uh, things that are kind of mechanical and stuff like that. Um, so I think, um, you know, it's steadily growing and, and the progress is good. And I think with women, that's why content making is so important. I think if it weren't for the fact that like, I know kind of how women operate, uh, I would be a little less motivated to make the videos <laughs> because I'm like, I don't need all this energy coming my way. I'm like, no, I'm doing it because I know women just tend to research things more than guys do when they get started in it, especially something where they would be uncommon, uh, you know, something where you're trailblazing a little bit. Um, being able to follow in someone's footsteps is so helpful. And Oh, I sound like I was going to cry. <laughs> um, and I think um, just having a little bit of lifestyle content and just showing people the fun that you can have while riding mixed in with some of the technical things. But I feel like this, the motorcycle community can be very self-reflexive. And that's why I like when brands like jewelry brands will feature female motorcyclists or um, I, even Tommy Hilfiger was doing like, I, I, it's so funny how often motocross or motorcycling will like penetrate the kind of cultural consciousness in a way or bleed into um pop culture and there was a whole Tommy Hilfiger I I really like high fashion I like tune into this stuff a lot but there was a whole Tommy Hilfiger Gigi Hadid 
collection inspired by motocross. I know Rihanna with Fenty uh, did one of those too. So I think um, just subtle things like that in other spheres will probably get women more interested in and it, and then it'll appeal to people who are younger. Cause I think like the, everyone thinks of like Harley or like women riders as like older Harley riders. Even in my class, I was like the youngest and a lot of people get into it maybe after having kids. And um, sometimes it's a loaded cultural thing, but I think we're very fortunate uh, in this hemisphere for the most part to just be able to like do whatever we want. So I think it's a good time to be a gal, especially a gal on a bike. So <laughs> it's interesting you say that because the Johann Zeitz or whatever his name is, who just took over as CEO for Harley, when he was uh, the CEO of Puma, he turned them around partially by marrying sportswear with fashion. Yeah, I have a the Puma Rihanna. They had they made these like boxing shoes. I love those. <laughs> yeah, so his strategy seemed for his turnaround, and I'm researching it for a video I want to make. But anyway, I'll talk about some of it here. Um, yeah. Part of his strategy for turnaround seems to be trying to marry a brand with fashion, but also with sort of uh, fashionable people and teams mm -hmm. and things uh, like Rihanna. Um, and I think they're doing a little bit of that now with um, that guy that everyone loves who's, who was Aquaman. Oh, Jason Momoa. Jason Momoa. Yeah. Yeah. Daddy Momoa. No. <laughs> yeah. They, yeah, people love him. Um, yeah. I, I knew him from Stargate, but then he went on to do. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> He was in like Baywatch too, like original Baywatch, like when he was 19 or something. Crazy. Yeah, but that's because he's from Hawaii. Yeah, that's before me, though. I mean, not yeah. before me. Like, I watched a little bit of Baywatch when it came out with like Pam Anderson yeah. and David Hasselhoff and all that, but it just never was that good, um, in my no. opinion. <laughs> yeah. So, when I really watched Jason Momoa was on Stargate, I think it was Stargate Atlantis or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, he's now one of their uh, representatives. So I, I can see the uh, the breadcrumbs lining up where he's following a similar structure with Harley. So I'm not going to be surprised if we start seeing... They've been teaming up with Jason Momoa again with Harley. Yeah. No, that's what I'm saying. Like Harley is, yeah, is the yeah. teaming. So I, I see the breadcrumbs of the mm -hmm. previous plan with Puma starting to kind of oh, come yeah. into fruition um, with Harley because he had the two phases with Puma. They just talked about the phase one with the rewire and they're going to launch phase mm -hmm. two, um, the hardwire in 2021. Anyway, mm. I, I think you're going to start seeing Harley show up in those places too. Um, yeah. I think that would, that would be cool and refreshing. And I mean, there's even like, I think that's what was cool about, uh, or like more media placements that seem natural as well. Like, uh, I loved the ride with Norman Reedus series. I don't think I saw all the second season, but the first season he was on like a triumph tiger and he rode with, um, Jeffrey Dean Morgan and even, uh, who the heck else was on that? There were a bunch of like really interesting cameos on that, but it was cool because they didn't get so techie. It wasn't like top gear. And obviously it's like, Top Gear is awesome and there's a place for that. But it was more about we're traveling these places, we're eating the food here, we're on the bikes having fun and and it's it's more about the experience. I think that'll that'll hit a bit more for women. It's about the experience and the community. Like it's instant community. That wasn't what initially drew me to it, but that's been a great side effect and it's cool because it's one of the easiest ways to make friends as an adult and because it's a seasonal thing in Wisconsin, you can kind of like 
hibernate on your friends. <laughs> and as an introvert, I need to be able to like disappear and come back and know that like, I don't have to like start from zero with making new friends. It's like, you can just hit people up that you haven't talked to in months and it's just normal and cool. And you just link up on the bikes and uh, it's like nothing changed. So I think that's pretty refreshing to be able to do. Um, and bikes can do that for people. And women riders are always receptive to linking up with other women riders. Obviously it's like, you know, stranger danger. You want to be safe about it, but there's just, there's some pretty solid camaraderie. I can go to, I actually went to Austin and I got linked up with the leaders in Austin and I rode with this big group ride with a bunch of people. So it's great that like, and most of it's through Instagram networking people. I think that's like the beautiful meld of social media enabling community and you can maintain it online and link up with people that uh, you've never even met before just because you follow them on Instagram. What, um, what was your experience like trying to find gear that was both safe and appealing for you? Uh, yeah, I basically have bought most things from kind of more independent or smaller brands. Um, I was lucky enough that we have this big event called Mama Tri Motorcycle Show and a lot of vendors come to that. So those are great opportunities to try a bunch of different gear out. And my first like riding jacket or leather riding jacket that I really loved was by Atwild. And I still have it. I just have to give it some TLC with the leather because it's all kind of um, a bit like sunburn or sun faded. So I have to uh, treat it a bit. But um, I just think they've had great design. And with smaller online retailers, they give you a very personal experience and they give you all the dimensions and they're pretty flexible, but it's limited. Um, I have kind of a traditional style. I, or I like that, uh, cafe racer style. And so lucky for me, there's a lot out there, but if someone's kind of, if someone likes girlier things, it's harder to find that stuff, but she quiet is filling that hole. I think, or the void of just getting a little bit fun and creative with it and colorful and, experimental so i think that's really cool of them yeah they're um they were the first ones i saw online um because i like fashion too i mean I, I like to do photography and i pretty much photograph people um a lot or i gotta wear I, something i, I did usually uh, it's, a, it's a mix but um <laughs> but so anyway, when I'm looking at things online, a lot of times I'm kind of checking out, especially good photos. Like I'm looking a lot mm -hmm. at them to see what I like about them, what I don't like about them. If there's anything that I think that I could take away from it and, and whatever. And so um, not to mention, I've been trying to kind of convince my girlfriend to uh, get into writing too a bit. And, mm. you know, anyway, the whole package of being able to show her stuff that she might like to wear and also kind yeah. of talk about the experience of writing. Hopefully that, that helps. But in general, I was seeing a lot of people and, and I wasn't really impressed with the gear. It just, you know, it was the least interesting thing about the photos. And mm -hmm. I ran into a few and I think one of the first ones was Doodle and she was wearing this jacket. And I was like, oh my God, what is that? And, you know, I oh. clicked on it and it was Chic Riot and I went to Chic Riot's account and was looking at all their different gear. And it was actually really cool and interesting stuff. It was a lot different than what I was seeing before. And then when I talked to them, they told me about Atwild and I went yeah. and checked out Atwild and they were super cool. And then I think I saw a picture that you posted wearing one of Chic oh, Riot's sure. jackets. Uh, was it the yeah, one? Yeah, that was pretty you, recent. Yeah, where you were smoking the cigar or pretending to smoke the cigar or whatever. Yeah, right? I had a 
I had a cigar because I wanted to do kind of like mafia boss vibes for the photo because it's like they're self-portraits. I like to make them fun. And they had uh, sent me that to try out for a little bit. And yeah, that was like the first one I posted in it. Okay. So do you smoke cigars at all or is that purely? Uh, I mean, I have, but I definitely don't make a habit of it. I have asthma. So oh, well, <laughs> I don't think that whole cigar I did not smoke. I gave it away, but I've had like little cigarillos from Cuba because one that large would probably murder me. I don't, <laughs> I don't want a cigar that big ever. Yeah. I mean, I asked because I'm, I'm a big cigar person. I, I enjoy okay. cigars. Um, one of the reasons I went to Nicaragua was that I have friends that live down there, but they're also in the cigar industry. Um, oh, cool. And one of Nicaragua's big exports is cigars. Um, so anyway, I went down there to hang out with cigars. So when I saw your photo, I was oh, like, oh, that's cool. cool. And then you were like, yeah, it's yeah. Photoshopped smoke. It's not. Well, mostly because I was indoors. I was in somebody's basement, so I wouldn't have lit it in there. <laughs> yeah. No, I've done the same thing. I don't smoke inside my house. So um, I've done some shoots where people had cigars and yeah, I wasn't going to light them. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, so last question before I let you go, because I'm sure you're starving. Uh, yeah, I'm really hungry. <laughs> <laughs> and I ask, I usually ask this at the beginning, but I feel like um, it's better to ask it at the end. So I'm going to start doing that now. But on the... Scale of full squid to full at gat, where would oh, yeah. you say you fall on the scale? I think I'm I'm probably like eighty percent or something. I guess it depends on what you consider all the gear. Because if we're factoring in lower body protection, that's where I take away my twenty percent. Because I do have like Kevlar line jeans and stuff, but if it's hot out or if I'm only like commuting and I'm not going on the freeway, I usually just wear regular jeans. But if you know anything about women's jeans. They, they, they're just like paper. No, <laughs> my brother, he would say like, uh, if you got an accent, those would shred like cheddar cheese. They're like spandex. I try to get like all cotton, but even so they're not going to hold up. So that's where my, where I dock some points, but always rocking the helmet. 95% of the time I'm in a jacket and it's, it's a leather jacket. Sometimes I drop in some armor. If I'm going on a grand adventure, I'll do Kevlar armor, the whole thing. And I'm very often in boots. So I give myself a good 80% if okay. we're factoring in lower, lower body. I think I could be 90 if we're not factoring in lower body. Uh, well, I interviewed a guy who went from um, D.C. to Alaska to Argentina. Um, and I asked him about it. And he was saying uh, his own perspective based on a number of falls and everything he's taken since having such a long trip mm-hmm. was that the lower body was actually much more valuable <laughs> than the upper yeah. body. Uh, Isn't that some stuff? Yeah. It's so funny. People get very butthurt when they see someone in my videos without a jacket on and, or if they're wearing like, but it, it's just so funny. Like the things that you can kind of like trick people into not worrying about it. I got very, very roasted by somebody else. Cause my friend had like reposted my video on Facebook And some guy like went off in the comments about me wearing um, track pants. But what he didn't know was I had armored like leggings, then jeans, then track pants because it was like 35 degrees. (laughs) So he's just like, what an idiot. Like she's just wearing track pants and nothing else. It's like, I'm wearing three pants, sir. Like mind your business. So that kind of stuff, I always just like to like let people be, you never know. Maybe they have supersonic skin. No, it's just, everyone's got their own thing. And I, it's kind of like smoking cigarettes. I'm like, as long as you understand the risk you're assuming and um, I guess don't do it around me. I don't know. (laughs) Well, you know, none of us gets out of this alive. 
Yeah, right? exactly. And Just do your best. It isn't as if renting motorcycles is safe in general. I mean, you can make it as safe as possible, but it's never going to be safe. Yeah. And even the next best thing, which is cars, it's still one of the number one killers of people. Oh, yeah. You know, it's dangerous being on the road, So, especially in the city. Anyone who's complaining about folks not wearing gear, in my mind, is just kind of being a bit of a hypocrite because there's no foolproof way to travel. And it's all about taking the level of risk that you're willing to assume. Personally, I'm full at GAT because I've always thought motorcycles were super dangerous. I want to make it as least dangerous as I can. Um, And so even if it's a hundred degrees out, yeah, I I wear my pants. I like my skin. I want to keep my skin. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, if I'm, I'm going to sweat anyways, you just like, once you're going, it's fine. It's usually not that bad. At least in, in Wisconsin, we only have a handful of days where it's brutally hot. So I feel very lucky that a lot of times it's very comfortable to wear all the gear. We broke our record for a number of 110 degree plus days in Arizona this summer. No, so. no, 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 no. It's hotter every time I check in on you guys. <laughs> every time. Yeah, yeah. Definitely seems to be some sort of warming going on. I don't know. <laughs> yes. It's almost like the climate is changing or something. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I feel bad because you're hungry. I hate being hungry, so I will let you go. But I really do appreciate you taking the time to come on with me. Um, yeah, thank you so much for inviting me on. I followed it and I was like, ooh, this is cool. Maybe I can get in on this. And then you just <laughs> reached out. It's perfect. Well, I appreciate it. I, uh, like I said, I, I like talking to people. I'm kind of an introvert. You know, I don't do well in crowds, but I do enjoy talking to people. And I'm kind of nosy, but I also believe in minding my own business. So this is like mm-hmm. the perfect meld for me to talk yeah. to people about things I find interesting and not feel like I'm being uh, the type of person who doesn't mind their own business, which I think people <laughs> should. So anyway. Thank you so much for watching this episode of the Modern Squid Podcast. If you'd like to follow along with Megan Stark and her company, Great Lake Supply Co., you can follow them on Instagram at Great Lake Supply Co., or you can visit her website, greatlakesupplyco.com. As always, there'll be an episode page with all her links as well on themodernsquid.com. If you'd like to follow me on Instagram, it is themodernsquid. Thank you all and have a good day.